Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, uh, sports nutritionist, and uh, nutrition professor, and uh, competitive bodybuilder. you got the Fortress, Robert Fortney, former editor at Muscle Man International, uh, former competitive bodybuilder, and powerlifter. You've got Phil, who has no cool nickname like Rob, but I'm a uh, <laughs> strength, strength athlete in powerlifting and and Highland Games, I'll be competing this weekend in my last competition for, for a little while. I'm also the founder of LiveForHope.org and StrengthGuild.com. Well, hey, Phil, what was that nickname that you did have at one point? What was that? Oh, I, I, oh yeah, what was that? Um, the Big Platinum sexier. Wombat. Yeah, Platinum <laughs> Wombat. Wait, what, what is this? Platinum. The, the, the Platinum Wombat. Um, platinum Wombat. Yeah, you've heard of, you've heard of, they called Jack Nicholas the Golden Bear. Um, I was out, I I took some, I was training at Golf Pro and and taking some lessons and he, they nicknamed me the Platinum Wombat instead of the Golden Bear. Yeah, that's that's possible. Somehow it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's possibly the worst nickname I've ever heard. (laughs) At least he's explaining the origins of it. Okay, we have a... That doesn't even sound manly or anything. You know, at least Rob sounds sort of stoic and... (laughs) (laughs) All right, go ahead, Rob. All right, we got Carson Jensen as a, a guest on now. Welcome, Carson. Hey, thank you, thank you, Rob. Yeah, um, we're go- and we're going to get to Carson in a minute and interview him and find out what he's got going on. And for the, those of you who don't know who he is, he's going to explain uh, his his deal in a few minutes. But we, uh, as usual, we've got a couple tidbits of news that we want to um, pass on. So, hey, Lonnie, let's start with you. Yeah, mine's drier. Yours is, I think yours is more fun and weird. Um, <laughs> I got a little bit too. But this, this is spanking new. June 2nd, um, this was released on Science Daily. It's, you know, that food guide pyramid. I was never a fan of the new one. Uh, the old one, right, it made geometric sense. You know, eat a lot of this stuff at the bottom, right? The base of a pyramid's big. Eat medium amounts of the stuff in the me- medium middle of the pyramid and then eat little amounts of the stuff at the little top of a pyramid. That always made sense to me. Um, and I think people need to realize, too, around the world, we don't want to be so ethnocentric here in the States that it's all pyramid, right? You Canadian guys, you had a rainbow, right? Um, you may or may not know that. I don't know. But uh, And then there's different food guides from around the world. But they finally just trashed the new one, which was – it had vertical lines on it. So it wasn't even clever, you know? And um, there's these vertical lines. I was People were writing cartoons about how silly it is. Their only justification was that it was shaped like a pyramid still, and people recognize that. But, you know, that only goes so far. So they, they, they finally got rid of that just last week with um, the my plate instead of my pyramid. So now it's a picture of a plate. And if people are interested at all, choose myplate.gov. Basically, the whole idea is the new icon is it's a plate with four portions on it. And they actually label one of the portions protein. They've got it. Looks like about twenty five percent of the plate uh, almost is protein. So I th- I see that as a positive move in the right direction. Um, and a huge chunk of the plate is vegetables. So uh, there's just increased focus on veg. And then there's a little cup next to it that, that, with for dairy. Um, 
But anyway, so just read you the quick blurb here. It says the U.S. Department of Agriculture has unveiled the federal government's new food icon, My Plate, to serve as a reminder to help consumers make healthier food choices. My Plate is a new generation icon with the intent to prompt consumers to think about building a healthy plate at times, uh, mealtimes and to seek more information to help them um, by going to choosemyplate.gov. Uh, the new My Plate icon emphasizes fruit and veg, grains. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of greens, but it is only about 25% of this plate here. Uh, and then protein and dairy food groups. And then it goes on to say a few things that um, the new icon is built to be simple and easy to understand. Uh, I like that because, like I said, the old pyramid, uh, well, the most recent pyramid, I, I, I really didn't like it. I thought it was sort of a joke. It was very confusing. Um, anyway, originally identified in the Child Obesity Task Force report, uh, it was noted that this is the feds coming to this little light bulb coming on. Actionable advice to consumers is needed. My plate will then replace my pyramid image as the government's primary food group symbol. Uh, and then it goes on to say that there's information at choosemyplate.gov, not just for lay people, but for health professionals and nutrition educators. So, of course, when they unload this new icon and these, if you guys remember, I read the new dietary guidelines for Americans a couple of months ago. And this is based in part on that, on the, you know, uh, the USDA, uh, you know, pyramid ideas is coming from these diet 2010 guidelines for Americans. So there's a whole so, category now for veg? For <laughs> veg. Oh, veg, Rob. Where does cucumber fall on that list? Okay, mm. Un- that would be under vegetables, and this is going nowhere fast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't... I don't advise anybody to get their cucumber fixed, man, from those ones yeah, coming over from... Well, uh, anyway, so brand new, June 2nd, you know, if you're interested, check it out. I mean, there is some kind of no-brainer comments like, uh, enjoy your food, but eat less. Well, thanks for that, you know, eat less. <laughs> um, you know what? That reminds me of those drawing. There's a joke. I, sh- I should send you guys the little icon. There's a joke of how to draw an owl. Have you guys ever seen this? I saw it floating around the internet. And it shows how to draw an owl. And it shows a little circle drawn on top of a, a big oval. And then the next scene is this completely detailed, super awesome drawing shadowed owl. <laughs> and obviously you don't go from one to the other very easily. They make it sound like, oh, here's how you draw the owl. It's the same <laughs> It's the same thing with this, you know, eat less, you know, or eat less sugar. And, you know, these things, people need some ideas and some tools. And so, you know, the guidelines themselves come across as a little bit sort of foolish in a way. But anyway, yeah, I don't think I'm going to eat less in any case. So, no. All right. Uh, my little piece here is on uh, Get Pigs Forum. I just saw some awesome thread um, that's uh, showing some video of uh I never can say his name. Hidetada Yamagishi, that IFBB pro. He's getting ready for the Tampa um, pro show. Anyway, if you if you watch the video, there's some cat behind him. I think he's doing. Uh, this is at, I, I believe this is at Venice Golds. He's he's doing some uh, pec decks with a with a full on gas mask on. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, I so, so I checked out. Somebody put a link on there um, to why perhaps this guy is doing this. And hold on, let me uh, let me read re- what he said. Hypo- hypoxia for muscle growth, get huge or die. It says a recently accepted paper shows that working in an oxygen deprived environment can, gosh darn it, build muscle when doing resistance work. Uh, 
This guy jokes might start about the variety of ways that one could replicate a near asphyxiate space, from smoking to putting a plastic bag with some holes over your head. <laughs> oh God! Can you see the the legions of of young guys just like dying? It's like that auto erotic asphyxiation or whatever. Yeah. People are going to be training with bags over their heads and, like, dying. Great. Well, do you remember there, what was it, like 10 or 12 years ago, that whole, the whole rage about the oxygen thing? Because I remember one of the gyms I was training at up here in Toronto at the time, um, they actually had some guy come up there and he had, like, a little booth with oxygen. You'd sit around it. It was like an oxygen bar. So that's the opposite. Yeah, that's more oxygen, yeah. not less. Yeah, right? yeah. People, yeah, people would pay a lot of money, you know, sit there and stick these little things up your nose and sit this oxygen bar and... You know, and have oxygen, pure oxygen shot up your nose. So I don't know, but well, yeah, listeners, we were talking just before we we got on uh, on air here about this is reminiscent, I think, of that katsu training, which is occlusion training. And I've actually known a few guys to try to experiment with that. You know, they're basically doing a partial tourniquet on their legs while they're doing leg presses, or their arms while they're doing curls. I, with the idea of occluding, you know, blood flow and oxygen. Apparently, it raises growth hormone in the body but you know what i mean to what degree yeah. to do something that crazy i would have to be dorian yates from 1996 <laughs> <laughs> you know i just i'm not gonna i don't know it, it, it sounds incredibly stupid to me basically yeah. i don't yeah i got a i got a couple bits of news um number one i just wanted to give a shout out um to the games this weekend so i'm going to be, be competing in the kansas city scottish highland games and as well um it's also the u.s national lightweight championship so um, if, if you're anywhere in and around there, come out. You know, it should be a good show. you got the best throwers in the world at the 198-pound and underclass. So, uh, well, tell them where it is, man. It's in Kansas City, man. Oh, geez. <laughs> Go to www.kcscottishgames.org, and you can get all the information you'd like. Hey, tone it down there, Platinum Wombat. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next news, I thought this was kind of cool. Um, powerlifting got some mainstream exposure. Um, which I, I don't know anybody in the, uh, the the sport knows that that isn't very often. But SportsBuzz.com, which covers a lot of NFL and and shoots out stuff to NFL fans all over the place, did a spot on powerlifting. They followed um, defensive end Philip Daniels from the Redskins with a group of powerlifters and uh, did did a, like four spots on their on their site. So that's, that's good. well, that's always good to know. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, if we're done all that little news bits here, let's get into um, Karsten here, who. Uh, gracefully graciously came on the show today again hello Carson hey Rob how are you good now the first thing I want to ask is do you know Lars Ulrich from Metallica uh no I don't you, okay uh, yes sorry I do of course I do yeah <laughs> sorry I even know about his uh I just had to get the name I even know about his uh father who was a very famous tennis player when I was a boy and I used to play tennis yeah well, that's that's why I'm bringing that up, and for for yeah. listeners who don't know why I'm bringing it up, or who I'm referring to the drummer of Metallica, Lars Ulrich, who um, is Danish as well, and um, began his life actually as as was Carson was saying as as a pretty ranked tennis player, and his son Lars Ulrich, the drummer of Metallica, uh, was following in his footsteps before I guess you could say the uh, rock bug bit him. Um, anyway, that's why I bring that up because Carson hey. actually you started off as a as a tennis player, did you not? I did. I started playing when I was about nine, and uh, the second year we played, I I got this feeling that I wanted to be the next Bjorn Borg, and I started practicing on a you know on a hitting wall before the clay courts were created in in the spring. In Denmark, uh, 
back when we played on clay courts, so you, you couldn't play outdoors before before May around there. But we had a hitting wall, and, and I, I played about three hours a day on that before the, the courts were created. Right. Now, you uh, actually, I didn't even know actually until a day or so ago when I was uh, looking mo- further into your website, which, by the way, I'll give that out now. It's, uh, would you like to give people the address? Yeah, it's, uh, it's yes2strength.com. Yeah, yes to strength one word yes to strength dot com. Yes. And I only just like I said, I only just noticed uh, when I was delving further into it a couple of days ago that you're actually uh, live on the opposite side of Toronto from me. You're over in uh, Mississauga. I am. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm on the uh, east side. You're on the west side. So um, oh. that's in- that's interesting. I actually that's didn't even close. know that. Yeah. Oh, no. Now you have a long, extensive history in, in in sports and training people and certifications and education and. All this type of thing, um, you know. Give us kind of a rundown of. I mean, I, there's so much here. I mean, it's amazing. But give us a little bit of a rundown of how you've arrived at where you are now. Yeah, I started after you know the equivalent of of high school in the Danish school system. I took a two year education in, in in math and physics, and actually at at the night where we graduated. I I was awake all night because I couldn't see myself spending you know the rest of my life in a in a laboratory, and I thought about what I really like to do. And the way it has been is that every morning when I arrived at that school, I, I literally only thought about going back home to train. So I thought, you know, you really like exercise and exercise physiology. So I applied to get into uh, the University of Copenhagen to study exercise physiology, and uh, and I have a master's degree from the university. University of Copenhagen. That's that's my uh, that's my main education. Uh, the third year, while I was there, one of my friends, he was uh, uh, the chairman in a local triathlon club that actually had several world class triathletes at the time. And he, uh, for unknown reasons, he asked me if I wanted to be a strength coach in that club. And and that's uh, that was my first strength coach job. And while I was still in university, uh, I also got to work with the Danish uh, national volleyball team and, and some of our best figure skaters who were also at the world-class level. And, and about a month after I graduated, what's, uh, what's called uh, Team Denmark or, or the Danish national sports system, they created their first position for a full-time strength coach. And there's a lot more to the story, but I had a connection to to the to the lady who became the the CEO at that time, and and I, I got the the first full time strength coach position in the Danish sports system, which I held until 2007, where where I moved here, and I had the, the great fortune to work with the very 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 both on a personal level nice and very dedicated athletes from 14 different sports during that uh, seven seven year period. Right now you um. You kind of come up at it from a different angle than some of the people that we've had in the past on here who've been strength, uh, strength and conditioning coach and so forth. You actually don't have really much of a background in the pure strength sports. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I have competed in uh, in tennis and in uh, soccer when I was very young and basketball a little bit and track and field. I've never been a strength athlete. athlete no. Right, so but it's, I find that it, it, that's again that's a kind of a new and refreshing angle for us to take on the show because um, yeah. um, you know again we've had most of the guys come from you know more of our background versus yours. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering kind of how how that. You know, I mean, cl- clearly uh, that that factors into uh, you know a large part of how you train different athletes in different sports. 
Um, give us your take a little bit on on how you think maybe your kind of vantage point might be different from somebody, another strength and conditioning coach who maybe comes from a background more of pure strength training sports. Yeah. Yeah, what, uh, what has helped me tremendously is the biomechanics that I've learned in, uh, in university, which helps me create a, a detailed needs analysis before I start working with, uh, with any athlete from any sport. And that combined with that, I'm very curious and, and I ask athletes and trainers a lot of questions about what it takes to succeed in the sport. Uh, that results in that, that I typically am able to create very, very good training programs very, very quickly, even for sports that I haven't worked with before. Does that okay. make sense? No, it, it does. It does for sure. Yeah. Now, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you, Carson? 42. 42. Are, are you involved personally yourself it, competitively at all anymore, or now are you just, uh, are, are you just, you know? Late, no, late? I, um, I swing kettlebells outside where we live. Okay. Okay. That's what I do. That's what I do. Okay. I've, I've thought about it sometimes, but I, to be honest with you, I, I do not have the motivation it takes to, to compete in, in, in sports of any kind anymore. Right. If you did, if you did have that inclination to, what, what do you think would be the sport that you would, uh, most probably it, engage in? It could be powerlifting. Yeah. It could be powerlifting. It's I have it. one of my best lifts, lifts ever is a, is a double bodyweight deadlift. You know, with, with no gear, so I, I could probably become decent if I train systematically for powerlifting. I think. Right, right. That's great. Now, do you have any? Um, you have some periodicals and stuff that you you are selling. Do, do you not? Yeah, we have an online store, and and our key product is uh, is a four hundred page book called the Flexible Periodization Method, and and our runner up, so to speak, is a smaller book called Combination Exercises. So that. Uh, that those are some of our key products there, and okay. we also have a bi-monthly newsletter, which we make uh, you know very very short and to the point, so that trainers you know within a minute or two can get a, a useful tip that they can uh, apply immediately. Right, and just for again for our listeners, that's yes to strength dot com, where you can find Karsten's website with uh, these different products and. Tidbits of information, which is good, but I think that's a good segue into our topic of the day um, because we're going to be talking again about periodization, um, and we're going to talk about that in just a few moments after these uh, important messages. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. Uh, there's currently one running on tnation.com about how to decide when to do more exercise versus diet when you're trying to lean out during those times of the year. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your 
Vix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, we're back to ironradio.org, and we got Carson Jensen here with us, uh, of course, and Phil Stevens, uh, the Platinum Wombat, and uh, <laughs> Rock Solid Lonnie Lowry here with us, so... We're going to be talking about periodization today, um, and, I, and again, this is this is a topic that's uh, we talk about quite frequently. But I mean, it's one of those things also where I think it's it's uh, necessary given the, the different ways it, it can be done and the different people's views and uh, I, just how somewhat confused people get with the whole process. So, does anybody have anything to say to start us off? <laughs> we could start by defining what it means. Okay, well, let's start there. Let's uh, give us give, give us your take on that. So I was, uh, for the, the first time I ever heard of the term, it was uh, through Tudor Bombas books, which were at the, the library at the university in the early 90s. So I think for about 15 years, I thought that periodization was exclusively a, a, like a, a term that was used in a sports context. Until I, uh, I happened to uh, look it up in the Collins Dictionary one day, and it simply just means a division into periods. And if you Google it, you get a mix of sports-related books and history-related books. So as far as training goes, it, it, in the simplest possible way, in my opinion, it is dividing a longer training cycle into periods with different goals and different contents. And right. You know, now, where, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, keep going. And, and uh, where it starts to become more detailed or, or, or complicated if you will, is you know what should the goals be of those period and what should the content be of those period and you know which type of training should come first and which type of training should follow and and so on and so forth. Yeah, I would think with all the different types of athletes that you you work with, Carson, it that must be a heck of a challenge to, to try and first formulate any sort of idea of you know where this person's potential might lie and where they might you know want to eventually wind up, but then. The, the difficult task is really then trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, customize the whole thing, given that person what they do. It, it is, it, and, and that is a that's that's intimately linked to periodization, the actual process of creating the training program. But the, it, it it all begins with a clear goal that that the you know the client or the athlete must be able to state, and you know if they work with a trainer in you know, incorporation with the trainer. And I have uh, I have something called uh, type 1 goals that I talk to athletes about, which is what they want to do in terms of being able to train and compete. So, for example, it could be uh, uh, one of them is to improve peak performance. And, and Phil, for example, I don't know highlight games in detail, but I know that one of the events is to throw a, like a, a big kettlebell over a, you know, a, a high bar behind you, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So an example of improving peak performance could be that, let's say an athlete is never able to make that height. Improving peak performance will then be able to make it one time. Another goal could be if, let's say, I don't know how many times you're supposed to do it, but let's say you were supposed to do it, for example, five times, and an athlete could do it one time but then was fatigued and couldn't do it anymore. A second type of goal could be 
could be to be able to repeat peak performance, you know, which might be a very often an applicable goal in, goal in strongman context, which are, you know, are a little more extended as far as I know. Right. And, so, and certainly, I mean, in, in the realm of bodybuilding and so forth, I mean, the periodization usually takes a form in, as far as split training and even dividing that up for. And Lonnie Lauer actually just, uh, you, you just finished your bodybuilding competition, the last of several that you had um, done. And, I mean, you know, you break that up into periods. And, again, in bodybuilding, you kind of refer, there's different references to, to how you call that. Right, Lonnie? Right. You know, I, I, if you sort of look at classical models of periodization, usually there's, you know, the approach a lot of strength coaches take is will be to take sort of a conditioning phase of six weeks or eight weeks, depending on the, you know, the status of the person, of the athlete. And then they might do linear periodization where they, they raise the intensity a little bit over time. You know, so for strength athletes, the percentage of their one rep max is going to go up over time, uh, something like that. Like you're saying, Rob, though, with bodybuilding, it's, they, it's sort of a, a different approach in that off season is usually high intensity but fairly brief in volume at least for a lot of guys but then you know you increase the exercise duration and volume during like a like a pre-contest or a contest season because the goals are just so different you know we were just discussing goals and that's the weird thing with bodybuilding too you know there's really not much of a performance goal i mean the goal is hypertrophy you know in the off season and in in the uh contest season it's it's you know body fat reduction so you know, it, it's kind of a, a different thing, which is, of course, why we had that discussion a couple of weeks ago about whether bodybuilding is a sport in the truest sense as opposed to a, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that's maybe theatrical or, or something like that. But right. Anyway. Right. Carson, what do you think is, is the biggest kind of um, buzz subject matter when it comes to periodization as it exists today? Oh, the, the ones that I hear the most often is whether linear or nonlinear periodization is the best. Okay. Um, I think right. the biggest one I've heard and talked about a yeah. lot is just uh, forecasting. How it's, you know, I don't know how I'm going to feel next week, let alone six months from now. So it kind of has to be a, a very, um, you know, you, you can periodize kind of briefly, but you can't write everything in stone that far out. So it needs mm-hmm. to be a flexible. I guess is what you know. Right. I guess it'd be a good, a good term, flexible periodization. But um, yes, yeah. Right, so some sort of acute assessment even before you begin, right? I mean, to try to get, like you're saying, Phil, so you can at least set some kind of tone for today's workout. You can't say, nope, nope, we're in the middle of this linear model here, and we have to be at this percent of the one rep max, and maybe the guy's too burnt to do that or something, Mm -hmm. right? That's what what, uh, SIF in super training calls cybernetic periodization, (laughs) and I think that's that's an absolute key to have into whatever – However you create your training program, it needs this uh, cybernetic component yeah. where the, the input is based on the output. Yeah. That's, right. that's an absolute key. But if I may get back to, uh, to what you said before, Lonnie, uh, one of the things I wanted to achieve with uh, the flexible periodization method was to have a, a, a method that is flexible enough so that within that same method, you can train for, for any kind of goal, you know, being that being body composition, which which it, it seems like you're training for, or you know improved maximal power, and you could train for a body cup building competition within the flexible periodization method, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and let me say one of the to use a non-technical way of describing it, I I believe that an athlete or a bodybuilder should spend the time doing 
doing the type of training that they need to do, and and that's that's the type of philosophy that's built into that system. Uh, and I think, for example, uh, to call call it training phase conditioning, that's that's way too too non-specific because what training adaptations are you really are you really shooting for if you're in a conditioning phase? I, I um, it's, it's strong to say hate, but I, I dislike that term. I don't think it's a very good idea to call anything just conditioning. Right. It's actually interesting you bring this up because I'm actually going to be preparing and going to start preparing for a powerlifting meet that I'm going to be doing in a few months, four or five months from now. And yeah. I'm at the point right now where I'm trying to think of how I want to um, tailor my, you know, the program that I've been kind of following, the periodization program that I've been following for the last um, year or so, and how I want to customize that for the meet because I've realized obviously that if you if you're Anywhere prepared to, to compete in whatever athletic endeavor you're, you you choose, <clears throat> at some point when you're only you know maybe you know a few months away from the actual competition, you have to expect that you're going to be in some sort of you know state of you know quote unquote conditioned you know conditioning. So yeah, you know, is it at that point is it more worthwhile to kind of just put away with things like again for if you're specifically talking about powerlifting. At that point, is it really worthwhile to be doing things like you know sets of eight and ten and those types of things? At that point, because again, as you, you would expect that the person would be at some sort of reasonable um, point of you know structural integrity, you know, which in powerlifting I, I guess could be called conditioning. So, right, yeah. it's a good point. We need to define even conditioning, right? right because right. if you talk about like someone who's never worked out before, you're almost just literally talking about a preparatory phase where you're giving them a chance to. You know, their body's never even exerted itself before. Oh. You know, you're talking about somebody who's sedentary or something. Maybe That's... flexibility or some cardiovascular. You know, maybe it's you know increase their their uh, cardiovascular endurance or their VO2 max or something. Maybe it's muscular endurance, like you were just talking about, or the ability to handle larger loads, like you were saying, like multiple sets of eight with a right. you know, moderate poundage right. or something. So it, you, you know, you, that it is it is a vague term, and it, it, it also applies to. I'm, I'm sorry, Phil. It, um, just experience. I mean, I, I was in the gym a couple weeks ago, and I, I the, the guy that was training with me was marveling at the fact that I, I went from a 225 pound deadlift to a 600 pound deadlift, um, and just skipped <laughs> all the uh-huh. points in between. You know, I did a couple warm up sets with 135, couple you know with 225, and then just went right up to 600. And um, you know, and I he was a young he's a young guy, um, got a lot of talent potential, but I you know. I said to him, I said, you know, you, you kind of get get to a point, you know, where your conditioning and experience is such that you can make those kind of determinations, you know, um, and, and and certainly you wouldn't want to, you know, advise somebody to do that who you know has much less experience doing that, knows kind of where they are and how the, you know, how well their body body is conditioned to be able to, you know, perhaps do that type of thing. Yeah. Well, in in insert something here. Yeah. Um. The philosophy, and I, I typically like to, to try and uh, go back to, you know, what's the philosophy fee for how much specific warm-up is needed. And, and in my opinion, the, the rule for specific warm-up is as little as as needed to be in, ready for the first work set. Yeah. So it, it totally makes sense to uh, to me where the way you're doing it there. And I also found it's very, very individual. Some people are able to handle very, very big jumps, and, and other other athletes or lifters need much smaller jumps to get ready for the first work set. And, and of course, that's that's specific to, um, to the person yeah. from one one session to the next, right? I mean, um, sometimes you can make these big jumps, and sometimes you can't. I mean, um, yeah. and, and and it also applies to just to, to 
to different exercises and movements as well. Um, there's some movements that I can do that I, 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 I certainly would never jump from 200 pounds to 600 pounds, and some mm-hmm. movements that I feel comfortable doing that at certain times. So, you know, it's, it's not one of those things that, where it's always static to the individual and it's always no. the same for every movement or every exercise. Makes total sense. I think one thing, you know, we talked about what, where people get confused with periodization too is also, um, like when we were talking to Joseph Johnson, he was talking about you know his work with Dr. Michael Yesis and all that. The Eastern Bloc philosophies on on periodization, and it's there's there's not a lot written for the pure strength athlete. And people try to take these concepts that you know Tudor wrote and, and things like that, which are very much more for multi multifunctional athletes, mm-hmm. and, and apply it to apply it to a powerlifter, a, a things like that. And you know there's no reason a powerlifter needs to be in the type of, I hate to use the word, but fitness that, say, an NFL athlete does. You know, we don't have to go run around. Our job is to move one thing one time as maximal as possible. And I think a lot of that gets ran down. I've seen people, you know, running running powerlifters for months on end and stuff like that. And people, well, I need I need to do this block where I'm, I can jog. And it's like, why? When's mm-hmm. the, you don't have to walk to the top of the stairs in powerlifting. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's where things get construed a bit too and confused. And it's yeah. not—it's not the lack from the writers. It's just that God, you can't take the. It would take years to sit down and write a book for every single kind of athlete. So yeah. it's—you have to kind of have the brains to sit down and decipher that yourself and keep the goal the goal. You know, this is what my athlete needs. Here's how we get them there. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely, that—that's what counts. It's—it's it's what the athlete needs. So Carson, you were Phil was just saying that it's—it's it's so hard to make. Um, you know, a system applied to everybody because people are so individual genetically and, you know, their state of training and all of these sorts of things. So, so, but you said you do in fact do that, right? You do have a system that is more or less uh, applicable to everybody. It, it is that, that is the goal of the system and it, it's based on, on seven different training blocks that, that covers nearly all of the, the goals that we can train for. And one of them, for example, the first block is um, is training weak links and, and structural strength and and uh, endurance of tonic stabilizer muscles. And the last one before tapering would be sport-specific combination of speed, power, agility, and endurance. And there's also a maximal strength block or and a maximal power block. It is, it is um, and that the way that works is that. When a trainer creates a program for an athlete or a lifter creates a program for himself, the lifter can take whatever combination of those blocks that he deems that he needs at this point in time. Yeah. Okay, so there's so an element example, of choice there. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, there's, there's a huge element of, of choice. Yeah. So, for example, let's say, Phil, that if you don't feel you don't need, you don't need more structural strength or rubber, you don't need more structural strength, then you wouldn't need, then you wouldn't use the structural strength block. Then you will jump right into the, the maximal strength block. All right. But let's say, let's say that you do one full cycle of that, and then you, uh, let's say you, you stall, uh, you start to get exhausted, uh, you may start to have some, let's say some unwanted movements in your back when you squat a deadlift. Maybe that could be something that would indicate, okay, let me do a few weeks of, uh, of powerlifting specific stabilizer training. No, no pink dumbbells or no, uh, not standing on Swiss balls or anything, but specific to powerlifting. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it, it, in a weird way, it kind of almost, um, that kind of 
ties in with that news blurb that Lonnie did about the whole, you know, the, the, the food guide and all that kind of stuff with the plate, right? You kind of choose little bits from here and there and, you know, the, the thing that applies most, you know, specifically to what you're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it would be true. And yet, and yet there the plate is that at least, and I think this is, it's a good analogy, Rob, I think, because it, it, like Karsten is saying, it's, it, uh, there's actually five different blocks, if you want to look at five colors on this plate that, you know, you're supposed to eat in these proportions. But what, what I think Karsten is going to step up beyond that in the training analogy there is that they wouldn't be fixed percentages. Like here, you know, fruits and vegetables are 50% of the plate, but you could, increase or decrease that or you could drop the grain portion or you know what i mean and the same thing we're seeing with what he's doing i think is you can kind of pick and choose what you what you need at the moment uh instead of having a fixed proportion that's absolutely right there are no fixed proportions it's it's what you need at the moment and and part of part of the book is is actually a a table that shows you recommended proportion based on your training age here, here's a question for you. I mean, one of, one of the things I talked about earlier was forecasting. Um, what do you do if you have, say, an athlete that's set to do, I don't know, just, we can just pull numbers out of our head. Let's say last week they went in and they benched, uh, 135 for uh, three sets of 10 for whatever reason you were having to do that. This week, say that one more set, time, Phil. Okay, you have an athlete, they, they needed to come in to bench press. Last week they did 135 for three sets of 10 for whatever reason, whatever block you have them in. This yeah. week they're set up to come in and go, you know, 140 for three sets of 10, just five pounds heavier, kind of a linear yeah, periodization. Yeah. That thing. What happens if it's just very evident that an athlete doesn't do that? Do you have a plan B in place already? Is there something, you know? Yeah, one of the things like that, yeah, one of the things when, uh, when I teach trainers, uh, I always tell them that whatever, however your, your program is set up, that should always be a, a way out, so to speak. So you can never, you must never fix both the load and, and the sets and the reps. So typically to stay close to your example there, the program would be, um, three sets of eight to 12. And, and then the athlete would increase the load when they hit three sets of, sorry, three sets of 12 mm-hmm. to, for example, 140. And then they could probably hit, you know, get at least eight, uh, eight with that new weight. So I, I, I never fix both the load and, and the, the reps. Yeah. Because you have to take into account that, you know, that day-to-day variation in readiness and, and yeah. various rates of progress from week to week. And right. let's say the athlete is downright sick and, and can't do anything that resembles a normal workout. Then it shifts from being a normal workout to either being a recovery type of workout or no workout at all if yeah. the athlete yeah. is really sick. Yeah. No, I um, just recently, I, I again, I, I've been saying because I'm getting ready to compete here, I'm trying to you know, play around with numbers and so forth like that. And I, I, I find for myself, obviously, this makes sense, but the more very, um, option you have available to you within the confines of how you best think you're going to be able to move your performance forward, um, is to the benefit of the athlete. Um, what I mean by that is, um, if, again, if you're a powerlifter or so forth and you're working off, you know, percentages specific, like within a, time frame of eight weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks, whatever it might be, even if it's like two weeks, three, four weeks, um, the more options you have available with you within those limits. It's like I say, if you're doing if you have three or four weeks set out of of say fives, um, with with fluctuating percentages between those, it gives more room for an experienced um, athlete lifter to be able to choose on any given day or week, um, you know, percentages within that framework of fives that are still um, 
for lack of a better term, on target with what, what your end game is. Um, I don't know if any of this makes sense, but... I, right. I, I, hey, let me ask you, Rob. Uh, actually, all all three of you guys. So part of it seems like the the thinking behind this flexibility is to keep uh, the like the the perceived exertion fairly high. Like like in, in Phil's example, if you were doing three sets of ten with one thirty five last week, and now you're set to do three sets of nine or something, you know, with one forty. Uh, you know, that, that would be sort of that classical linear periodization. The, the intensity went up, the poundage went up, but the volume went down a little. But right. what we're saying here is it's a good idea to let the athlete go ahead and do the three sets of 10 with 140 if he can pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and, and don't, and be, they, don't be locked into both the number of repetitions and the intensity, but give some flexibility, but keep the output, keep the perceived exertion High is that what we're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think though that it's important for people to realize that. I think a lot of people when they're doing again, speaking specifically to me, talking about basing things off, you know, um, perceived one rep max repetitions, you know, uh, repetitions, you know, broke broken down to percentages and so forth, is that people think, okay, well, I'm doing, you know, I'm in a period now where I'm doing, you know, um, sets of six, you know, so I'm not working at a hundred percent. Well, that's completely ridiculous because if you're, <laughs> you're always, if you're working off this perception of what is your one wet rep max, t- um, you know, repetition, any percentage, uh, any kind of, um, within the guidelines of the percentage is broken down, any, um, you know, set performed, whatever the rep range is going to be, you know, technically speaking for that range, 100%. And I think that's where a lot of guys get tripped up, right? Because they don't realize why they're burnt out by the time they get down to triples and doubles and singles. Well, see, that's what I was getting at, Rob, exactly, because, I mean, there would be times where you would think you would slightly pull back on the reins, you know, that every workout in the training program is not at 100%, is not a 20 on a Borg scale of 20, Right. you know what I mean? Well, that's why I always always say that it's probably a good idea to lowball yourself, and actually, when I say that, uh, and I think Phil could probably chime in on this because he'll know what I'm talking about. If you're if you're ba- if if your maximum squat let's say is 400 pounds, to you, you enter that in as your one rep max when you're breaking down percentages is probably a foolish move. It, it, certainly if 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 the the periodization quote unquote or the time frame that you're you're going to be working this is probably more than four to six weeks, it's probably best to kind of really. And when I say low ball, people think, oh, okay, so my squat is 400 pounds. So you're saying like make it 395. I'm like, no, make it 360. You know what I mean? Like really low ball it because. And not only, A, does that address what I was saying just a few minutes ago about, you know, the, their perception of hitting 100% no matter where your rep range is, but it also um, allows you, again, as we we're talking, and Phil used the word flexible, you know, it allows you more flexibility to, from week to week, judging on how you are, to still move forward even if you're, the load is, you know, um, backed off a bit, but it's still, the percentages are still, you know, Correct. If that's right. What, it know. gives that element of success and, and progression. Yeah, right? exactly. And, and on weeks that you do feel, you know, you feel your oats and your, you know, we all know how that feels. You go in the gym and for whatever reason, everything just feels like you're Superman, right? And everything just moves. It almost feels like you're not moving the weight. It's just moving itself. On those days, you can make uh, a more educated, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say guess, but a more educated kind of a, 
determination whether or not on that day you want to still press a little further, but again, stay within the realm of the percentages so you're not, you know, um, short, you know, short circuiting the whole program. I actually I mean, almost never base anything on a one RM max. Only when, uh, if I prescribe super maximal eccentric training, that's the only situation I, I ever prescribe such a protocol. You know, very much due to the fact that the relationship between the percentage of the one RM and how many reps you can do is varies from lifter to lifter. Yeah. Oh. oh, very. Yeah, we we've had that discussion <laughs> before, yeah, yeah. especially yeah. In yeah for, especially when you go beginner versus intermediate or advanced. I mean, yeah. oh, of course. You yeah. know, if you say, oh, you can do ten repetitions with fifty percent of your one rep max. Yeah. yeah. Well, not if you're strong as hell. You can't. No kidding. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. And I mean, you, yeah. the more you you further in your progress as a strength athlete, the more you find that it's just absolutely so. I mean, you're not going to find some guy who's a, you know, 900 pound squatter who's, you know, able to do, you know, 75% of his one rep max for, you know, two sets of 10. It, it, <laughs> it you know, it, because you're talking about weights now over what, like seven, seven, eight hundred pounds, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not the same. Proportional. It's, yeah, it's you know, and, proportional. Which goes to what I'm always telling people all the time. It, it, you know, people are like, well, it doesn't matter if you can squat 200 pounds or 700 pounds. If you're strong enough to squat 700 pounds, then that means that you're, you know, that, that the, the stress on your body and all the, all its systems is the same because you've developed it. And my argument is always the same. And that is that just because you have the, the horsepower to move substantially more weight than others, that doesn't mean that it's the same thing for you versus the young guy, right? Or the other guy who's only squatting 200 pounds. I mean, if you're squatting 800 pounds, I don't care, you know, the the amount of damage that you're inflicting on your totality of your system is is so much greater than the guy who's doing 200. Um, It's amazing. And and so, yeah, that has to be always taken into into right. Skeletal, yeah, neurological, exactly. all around. Exactly. I mean, just, just having 800 pounds sitting on your back without even moving it, yeah. You know, Sorry. before you before you even do the do the repetition or anything, is just you know <laughs> a, a crushing thing on your whole body. And you know what? This is a good example of you know. I know Karsten has a lot of experience too, and all of us spending years in the strength sports. That's the kind of stuff I could see a beginning trainer making some real boo boos if he was just following a textbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's what I was just going to say. I mean, that's this is where what we're talking about is where things get muddy because anybody can go by. You know, super training or, you know, Tudor Bumpus books and, and write a program. It's that stuff. It's the variables in the middle um, is where coaches come in. I mean, it, it really is. And it, it kind of separates the, the the cream from the crop. I don't know. I mean, it's um it's those days where, God, something is wrong. What do we do? You know, it's those questionable days. It's, it's And it's let me ask, thing. can I ask all three of you then? Yeah. What about as far as detecting that phil Mm -hmm. what are some brief assessments when you have somebody do like a you know a vertical jump and and see if you know their nervous system is burnt out because they can't jump as high you know i mean how do you get your uh, head around what they're ready to do today other than just their subjective descriptor Karsten, why don't you go ahead? What kind of assessments might you do before a session then? I actually typically would, would look at uh, at mood and, and the subjective rating of readiness. And mm-hmm. there's a really good reference in uh, in Vladimir Isurens, and I'm sure Joseph May talked about him, uh, book Block Periodization, where he, he references a study that showed that subjective rating, when it's about, when it's elite athletes, is as effective as various kinds of, you know, saliva measurements. I'll tell you what, if you can, 
I'm going to ask you to email me that reference. I, I want that. Okay, I will. <laughs> because, yeah. I, because just recently, I, I read a really interesting book by Kelman uh, uh, called Enhancing Recovery. And, uh, and Kenta, it was another one of the, re- the uh, authors. It was one of the few textbooks I really read cover to cover. And their, their whole thing is they have this, it's from a, more of a recovery as opposed to a readiness model. But they're using things like mood, appetite sleep disturbances and they're actually applying numbers to these things like a likert scale right from very very low to very very high like a one to seven scale and we talked about that on the podcast before that i think putting things like hunger or mood readiness to train logging that in your training log i think is a is a great idea whether it's recovery uh you know to to get an idea of how recovered you are or to literally plan the day's workout right Mm -hmm. i mean yeah yeah. yeah, I will send you that, Lonnie. Okay, yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, for for me, it's a lot the same. It's it's talking to them, seeing what their mood's like. I mean, after a few months, you know, you really get to know somebody, and you can kind of tell what's going on. Other than that, for me, it's you know, I like coming in with a plan. I'm 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 a fan, and I also don't like periodization in certain ways, and I, I'm also a fan of instinctual training, and I think it has its downfalls too. But I think you need a plan because there's there's two types of people. There's those you know, like Dave Tate kind of says, there's smoke and there's dust. There's, there's those two different kinds of people. Um, so you need a plan, but but you also need those those exits and those those chances where, hey, it's there. You know, it, if it, it would be a disservice to me if I had this planned, this athlete to do five sets of five with this, and he just smokes them all, and we don't go for it. You know, so you got to have that plan too. Um, but um, you know, so I always have warm ups. It's like okay, if we're squatting, this athlete always does the same warm ups, and by the second third warm up, it's like. Dude, you're not moving right. You know, things are looking yeah, heavy, yeah. things are looking slow. That looks a lot different than your yeah. usual 225 does. We're backing off. Right. You know, it's it's things like that, variables that you get get over time. You know, it's getting familiar with familiar with the people and things like that. So, yeah. And then there's the uh, as far as you know, um, uh, cutting back when you get tired and you don't perform as well. There's the whole issue of using concentrated or distrib- distributed loading. And if you're you're going with a concentrated loading, you you gotta train yourself into into fatigue and even um, performance decrements. Right, purposeful overreaching like that. Yes, right? purposeful yeah. overreaching. Yeah. yeah. Rob, you use that strange um, way of testing this. It's something about you know urine samples and you know straws. You were talking about tasting it, and you could tell something from. <laughs> What? <laughs> no, I'm just, sorry, just reaching out there, trying, trying to bring. They say up. Rob's got some secret. <laughs> he can he can taste, uh, you know, I don't know, urinary, I don't know, metabolites, cortisol or something. <laughs> Bizarre. Uh, All right. Well, I'll tell you what. One of the things that I always did with to, to deal with this, and you guys might say, "Oh, what are you doing?" But I've always liked this sort of undulating periodization, you know, where, you know, you, you sort of go heavy, medium, light, heavy, medium, light. Mm-hmm. And I've sort of modified that, too, because I'll tell you what it allows me to do is, you know, there are days where you go heavy and you're, you're activating some of the, you know, your big, fast motor units. You're really taxing your nervous system, but might be a little hard on your joints, you know. But at the same time, it's so brief, you're not really glycogen depleting and exhausting in that way. And then, you know, on the light days... Then you're giving your joints a bit of a break. You're activating, 
you know, you're more like rotating through motor units instead of just jumping with heavy weights right to the biggest ones, although you can eventually activate them. But, but then you are using up some glycogen and calorie burning and all that. But what, one of the things I always liked about undulating periodization is that it gives somebody, if you're, if, again, if you're not brainwashed and locked into the, nope, today's heavy day, nope, today's light day, maybe you do two lighter, uh, weight, higher rep days in a row, but just because you're in that kind of a mood, you know? And then maybe if you're like you like you were saying you're feeling your oats and you've really got it all together, maybe you do two or even three heavy days in a row, and that's how I've always sort of done that too. You know, so I try to undulate between heavy and light, but then give myself an extra day of one or the other if you know if it's all there. So I don't know. It's just another way to look at it. Then one of the things when when considering undulating periodization, I think it's it's a powerful concept to. I do think the one thing to consider is the relationship between the different training zones. So, for example, let's say you're an experienced, just to stay with, with powerlifting. If you're an experienced powerlifter and you're undulating between, let's say, 1 to 3 reps and 4 to 8 and, and 12 to 20, it's very unlikely that the 12 to 20 reps will have an effect on your, your maximal strength. Mm-hmm. But if the training zones are closer together or if your goal is, is powerlifting, um, sorry, bodybuilding, there's a bigger chance that different training zones will have an effect on, in your case, Lonnie, on, on muscle mass. Right. And I'll tell you, we, we had Nick Bird on, on the show a couple of uh, months ago, and Stu Phillips' lab, where he's from, they're doing a lot of work with you know, maximizing protein synthesis with like 30% loads. You know, literally, these guys are doing 23, 25 repetition sets. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now, would I do that all the time, even for maximum hypertrophy? No, the experience side of me says, no, I'm just not going to get that big doing 30% loads all the time. No, but no. I do think if you throw one of those in every several sessions, yeah, I, you're right. I, the type of athlete, again, back to the goal, right? But, but yeah, in this case, yeah. undulating would be great for bodybuilding. I always yeah. thought it was. I, I tend to like that. So, and, and one of the things that I've found in you know studying various training protocols and, and textbooks over the years is that that element of have a, a difference – in intensity and volume within the same week, it's something that you see in almost every program, and and almost every program shows it to be very very effective. And my experience shows the same thing. So all the programs that I create have a variation of intensity within the same week, but it's uh, the variation is not that big. It's not like like ninety percent and thirty percent. It's typically mm-hmm. maybe ninety percent and seventy percent depending on, on what the goal is. So I make sure that there's a synergy between the training days. Right. Hey, this is completely off topic, but it just something just dawned on me listening to you talk. Carson, are, did you attend, uh, did you study anything or attend the Copenhagen Muscle Research Center? Uh, are you familiar when, with, when, I, I, yeah. I, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm, I start, names like Bainstall's team start coming in my head, you know, and I'm like. He was, he was one of my teachers at university. That's amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. For listeners, if you don't know Bain Saltine, and I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, but I've you, seen him speak once, once or twice. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this guy, he's published probably over 500 papers, and he's what I consider one of the almost founding fathers of modern uh, exercise physiology. I mean, whether it's like bed rest stuff and cardiac patients or altitude or looking for some of the mechanisms behind you know what is there a chemical mechanism behind what makes exercise work like interleukin 6 or something like that i mean i'm just totally pulling stuff out of my long term memory here but mm-hmm. all over the map with with some of the topics so i mean that's that's a very impressive pedigree then 
that you know we've got one of his students here on with us. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, no, no, they, you know, he was he was very very good. We we learned a lot from his lectures. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Are we out of time? We're pretty there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at the, uh, my call recorder. I think we're we're yeah. just about it. So, uh, is there anything else that we're missing or that you wanted to touch on, Carson? No, I think it was a it was a very good interview. I, I enjoyed it. Very good. Okay. You know, awesome. we could you know this is a big topic. We could talk about it for, yeah, for a very long time, day. but uh, <laughs> but uh, I think an hour is a good time frame. All right. Well, thanks for joining yeah, us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for thanks for having me. Are you uh, are you interested? Are you guys interested in an electronic copy of the book? I would gladly send it to you. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Yeah. So I have. Yeah, we, I have, maybe we uh, can look it over and, re- and sort of review it. You know, I, that's one of the things I think Phil we should start doing in the future. Anyways, I'd love to start doing product reviews. Yeah, I think it'd be it'd be fun. Book you know. reviews and stuff. Yeah, yeah. that'd be good. Yeah. I'll send it to Robert. Then I have his email. Okay. And then he can distribute it. That sounds perfect. It was All nice right. speak, nice speaking to you. Yeah, you, you too. Do. Until and next I'll send time, uh, that reference to you, Lonnie. Okay, awesome stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members so for four dollars a month which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community and we'd like to also announce that with our 100th episode we're going to offer that caption contest on our facebook uh, listeners page so go to facebook the type in iron radio Look at the pictures of Phil and Rob. We're going to have a picture of each of these guys. And caption the photo. It should be fun. So again, go to Facebook, Iron Radio listeners page, and tell us what Rob and Phil are doing, at least in your head. should be fun, and you'll win a prize if we choose you as the funniest caption. Thanks. For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th. 2011 at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much, much more. So for more information, go to www.theissn.org. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.